I am humbled to be here to share God's word with you today. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, uh, but we'll read the whole chapter, so please open up your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, as we read through the chapter, I want you guys to think, think, how does the chapter connect verses 1 through, um, let's say, 15? How does verses 1 through 15 connect with verses 16 through 21? So pay attention to that, and we'll read the text. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we may know to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Will you pray for me before I preach? Will you pray with me that God would illuminate our hearts together as we see his word? God, we just need you so much. We tremble before your word. Help us to humble ourselves before it today. Help us to be illuminated in our hearts to see the light of your glory in the face of Jesus. Thank you that you are the one who does this work in us, and you have given us your very word. We praise you for that. Please help the hearers that they would listen well to your word, that it would be illuminated, that they would be illuminated to see it, 
and to see your very word in scripture and help me as I preach that you would um, open my eyes to see wonderful things from your word today, even now, in Jesus' name, amen. So, Peter, when he wrote this, was probably in his 60s, but as a younger man, he had already encountered the life-transformative power of the gospel. As described in Luke 5, after receiving a miraculous catch of a lifetime of fish, which probably had the equivalent value of about $150,000, he left it all and followed Jesus. But before that, Peter said to Jesus in verse 8, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So Peter recognized that he was a sinner, and that's the first step in the gospel of faith, recognizing that you are a sinner, not worthy being in, of being in the presence of God, and yet, in the same breath, seeing the magnificence of our divine Lord, Jesus Christ. Yet God, in his mercy, responded to Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And then, in an act of conversion, they left it all, and they followed Jesus. And so, Peter was a man of faith. And yet, there are times, even in Peter's life, when his faith was on the rocks. When it seemed like Peter would give in to the waves of his doubt and sink down to the depths of total depravity. In Galatians 2, 11 through 14, Peter, Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face because Peter fell into the fear of man instead of believing the truth of the gospel. And earlier than that, even Jesus rebuked Peter in Matthew fourteen thirty one, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And even in the best of times, when Peter thought his faith was so strong that he would lay down his life for Jesus, Jesus responded in John thirteen thirty eight, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And Peter did. Matthew 26 through 69, Peter denies Jesus three times. And claims not even to know the man. And while you may not be that far gone, I know that every one of us battles with unbelief on some level. And many of us have had times in our lives when we feel like giving up or have practically denied Christ with our thoughts or actions or words. But I am here today to say there is still hope. There is hope for you. Even you. Because we have such a high priest, Jesus. And Hebrews 7.25 exclaims of him, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Amen. This very same hope is, is a hope that Peter clung to because Jesus himself said to him in Luke 22, 31-32, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so, as Peter draws near to taking his last breaths on this earth, he fulfills the command of our Lord to strengthen his brothers that their faith would not fail to strengthen them. And that is why Second Peter's is in your Bibles today. Second Peter is in your Bibles to strengthen your faith. Because the Apostle Peter wanted people like you to have a rock-solid faith. He wanted Christians to grow in the faith they had received so that they would not fail and fall prey to false teachers. 
You see, the best weapon against Satan's attacks on you in this world is faith. Which is exactly why Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 6.16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And you're like, Josh, okay, okay, I want to have faith, but where? Where does it come from? On what basis can I believe with all the lies circling around me in this world? How do I know? And how can I believe the truth? Or maybe you're like Peter and your faith is on the rocks. Where can you find safety from the waves of your own doubt? Well, if you're listening today, you've come to the right place because 2 Peter 1, 16-21 gives us the most reliable basis for our faith. It gives us the solid rock that we all need to stand on. And here it is, the main idea of 2 Peter 1, 16-21. The most reliable basis of faith is God's Word in Scripture. The most reliable basis for your faith is God's Word in Scripture. And if you like outlines, in 2 Peter 1, 16-21, Peter provides two prophetic proofs that you must pay attention to so that you can have a resilient faith in the triune God of heaven. Because... No one was able to write that down. I'm going to shorten it to something you can write down. Two proofs. Two proofs to pay attention to so that you can have a rock-solid faith. Two proofs to pay attention to so that you can have a rock-solid faith. Two proofs to ponder. Two precious proofs. Proof number one, the reliable proof the knowledge of Jesus in Peter's eyewitness account. Peter's eyewitness account. This is verses 16 through 18. 16 through 18, Peter's eyewitness account. And on top of that, we have two, the more reliable proof, the prophetic word, not from private people, but from God. The prophetic word, that's verses 19 through 21. And at the end, there's also one imperative, one plea, so that you would persevere in the faith. So listen for that. Two proofs and one plea to persevere in the faith. So how does Second Peter 1, 16 through 21 connect to the rest of the chapter? Well, verse 1, you see that he says, to those who have obtained a faith. So Paul is writing, and what's on his mind is the faith of these believers. And that's exactly what he writes about in verses 5 through 9. Exhorting the believers to supplement their faith. And in verse 10, Peter's exhortation is that the believers make their calling and election firm or reliable. It might say, confirm in your Bible your calling and election, which is another way of saying, make your faith rock solid. And so it only makes sense that in verses 16 through 21... He gives us now the basis for that faith because everyone knows you don't build a strong, impenetrable building without a good foundation, right? Which brings us to the first proof, the reliable proof, the knowledge of Jesus in Peter's eyewitness account. This is verses 16 through 18. Look at the text. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So, why, why does Peter say for? For in verse 16. 
Here, verses 16 through 18, Peter gives his eyewitness account. But in the previous verses, 12 through 15, Peter expressed his desire to remind them to be eagerly strengthening their faith because Peter was about to die. You see, your faith is like a cathedral under construction. It needs a door of virtue, a pulpit of knowledge, the pews of self-control, the flying buttresses of steadfastness, the kneeling bench of godliness, the communion table of brotherly affection, and the stained glass windows of love to be added to it so that it's fully furnished. And with the Apostle Peter about to die, it was crucial that the believers knew that their cathedrals of faith were not hopeless building projects that they were wasting their resources on. No, it was imperative that they keep building even in light of Peter's departure. And so, in verses 16 through 18, Peter gives them a proof that the foundation of their cathedral is rock solid and good enough for them to continue to bank on the promises of God and so build their faith. And so, verse 16, Peter states, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths... See, like, myths back then, they, they were rampant. They filled the air of Asia Minor, where Peter was writing to. And as Peter was writing this, he wanted the believers there to know that their faith wasn't based on some made-up fairy tale. It wasn't a fable. No, their faith was real. And everyone knows, when you claim to have the real truth of God... And it's not. And then the, when the forefather of that religion dies, it's easy for the people to realize the falsehood of their pseudo-faith. Remember uh, in Acts 5 when Gamaliel talks about Thutis and Judas the Galilean? They had risen up and a bunch of people followed after them until they died. And then it all came to Nothing. And all the followers were scattered. That's, that's what would have happened to Christianity if Christianity was a myth. But Peter's faith, along with the apostles, did not fall apart because their faith was from God. From God's anointed one, Jesus, in Jesus. And so Peter testifies to this truth in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter had made known to them the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you might ask, well, where's your proof, Peter? Where is your proof that Jesus is the Christ? And that He is the Almighty God? And that He came to this sinful world with all the power to forgive my sins? And on what basis? When did you become such an authority, Peter, that we should listen to you about this matter? So, so often we, we stand back and we think, why? What, why should I listen to you or to what you have to say? You see, the basis of our faith, what we put our trust in, that matters. Because we do not believe through blind faith but faith that has a worthy object. See, our faith is in the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the infinite worthiness of Him that causes our hearts to hold fast in trust. We are not like faith manufacturing machines built to supply strong faith. No, we are more like weak 
two-cylinder lawnmower engines that only keep going because they're fueled by a good power source. You see, it is the quality of the object of your faith that either keeps you believing or bleeds you dry. And if you mix the bad fuel of a false messiah with the true power of our Lord Jesus Christ, then the spiritual engine of your heart needs to be cleaned and flushed out before you can have the true vitality of faith that God wants you to be exercising. And so I call you today to know the Jesus that the Bible proclaims and not the Jesus of your imagination. But how? How did Peter know that the faith he proclaimed was not a fairy tale? Something thought up by the art and imagination of mankind. How did he know he was following the right Messiah? when he proclaimed the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The text says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter had first-hand acquaintance with the majesty of King Jesus. Peter and two other witnesses saw the splendor of Jesus' deity. They saw a portrait of the prestige that Jesus had given up to take a place on this earth in humility. And that event that Peter is describing is called the Transfiguration. It's recounted for us in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. And I'm just going to read verses 1 through 9 to you. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And they were coming down, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell, no one, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. As I said, Peter was one of three eyewitnesses there at the Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, right? And according to John 8, 17, it was well established that two witnesses deemed the truth of someone's testimony in in the Old Testament Jewish law. So they needed two witnesses to make something this is true. And according to other passages of Scripture, that requirement could be expanded to three witnesses. The fact that Peter was one of three witnesses to see the glory of our transfigured Lord is proof that what he saw is not a fairy tale or a trick. No, Peter's testimony was sure corroborated by three eyewitness accounts. And Peter was one of them. This gave Peter special knowledge, knowledge that him and only two other people saw firsthand. He had an experience. And it was this firsthand knowledge of the divinity of Jesus. Jesus was God's very Son, making Him equal with God the Father in glory and perfection. You can see John 5.18. And it was on that holy mountain that Peter got to see a taste of that divine glory. As verse 17 goes on to say, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see, this glory and honor was glory that God the Father gave to Jesus, the Son of Man, echoing Daniel seven thirteen through 14 
And if you still have some doubts in your mind as to the fully divine status of Jesus, I would call you to remember that God does not go around handing out His glory to just anyone. No, Isaiah 48.11 says, God says, My glory I will, will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. That's what God says. So why? Why did God give glory and honor to Jesus at the transfiguration? The answer is because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Fully God and equal to God the Father in all His perfections. And it is the joy of God to give glory and honor unto His very Son. For His Son is the very image of Himself. Jesus is the divine Son. God the Father was pleased to share His glory with Jesus and to acknowledge His Son in affirmation by direct speech and the transference of God's visible glory unto Jesus. And so the very voice of God born to Jesus was carried by magnificent, visible, divine glory itself. That word born is is really important for you guys to understand in this chapter. It, It means carry or bear. It's important because of how Peter associates it with God's direct working and word. Notice verse 17. God's very voice was born. And verse 18. This very voice was born from heaven. So in 2 Peter 1.17, God's very voice was directly brought to Jesus by the majestic glory himself. And the reason I mention that is because the same word also shows up in verse 19 and 21 to show that God's word comes directly from himself. He is the light bearer. He produces his word. He is the one carrying his prophets as they write his word. God is the one working to bring his word and the understanding of it. This is nothing short of a miracle. And, and this is the closest one can get. I mean, a, a lot of people sometimes feel like they're distant from God, like maybe he's never spoke to them. But Peter is not one of those people. No, he heard God's very voice. And saw it gloriously brought from God himself unto Jesus. And the brightness of God's glory and the thundering of his voice was so stunning that when God spoke, he fell on his face and was terrified. And the voice said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see, Jesus is the beloved Son. This one is God's special Son. Would you come to Him today? Would you accept Jesus and refuse yourself? He alone is the special Holy One of God. He alone has received God's special love. My friend, if you want to know what God's love is like, remember that you are not the beloved one apart from this Jesus. No, it is only in Jesus that we get the pleasure of the Father. That is the emphasis of God's words here on Jesus. I delight in you. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So what does that mean? It it means that Peter heard the confirmation that Jesus is the Lord Christ. He is the Messianic King. He is the King the Jews were waiting for. Jesus is the one. And this was not a myth. It is true. And so, he goes on in verse 18... We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The witnesses heard this voice, 
God's very voice being born from heaven. And they heard that voice when they were with him on the holy mountain. Now, it's no secret that when you read the account of the transfiguration, it makes sense that uh, we should think of some other places where God met man on a mountain, like probably Moses in Exodus 19. The whole mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Or perhaps the lesser known yet similar story of Elijah on the mountain in 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13. But know that the great majority of places in the Bible that use this phrase, holy mountain, do not refer to Mount Sinai or Horeb. In fact, referencing the holy mountain is most often an eschatological, that is, end times, way of referring to Mount Zion, the mountain in Jerusalem where everyone will ultimately come in the end to praise the Messiah God. As Psalm 99.9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. You see, Peter, in adding this reference to the place where they saw God the Father speak to Jesus and Jesus receive glory and honor, well, this is just another way of showing us that Jesus is the divine Lord to whom all worship is due. God being on the mountain receiving the glory that was due him. That's what made this place the holy mountain. And so Peter has given us the reliable proof of our faith in Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And he has all the power of God. And he came to this earth as the long-awaited for Messiah. And to all this truth, Peter, along with James and John, were eyewitnesses. And so we have seen the first proof Peter provides that you must pay attention to so that you can have a rock-solid faith, the reliable proof, the knowledge of Jesus in Peter's eyewitness account. And yet, even Peter's exclusive backstage pass to the eschatological in-person debut of the King of Glory is not what Peter ultimately banks on. Nor does he instruct his audience to have Peter's eyewitness experiences be their focus. This is really interesting, right? Because what do most false teachers do? They say, look at me. Look, Look at my experiences. Look at how awesome I am and what I have done is. Hear the occurrences of my life and be in awe. But no. Even Peter says there is something much more sure than his own experiences. There is something more fully confirmed or more reliable. There is something firmer for Peter's faith to be grounded in than his own experiences. And so, you need not be Peter. You need not be Peter. Because we all have something better, something more trustworthy in its abiding nature than Peter's eyewitness experience. And so, verse 19 says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, the text doesn't say, and we have more fully confirmed the prophetic word. Peter is not saying his eyewitness account is doing the action of confirming the prophetic word, or specifically the Old Testament scripture. No, the text is saying, and I like how the the Legacy Standard Bible translates it, listen, and we have as more sure the prophetic word. And we have as more sure the prophetic word. 
So is Peter saying that the facts of Scripture check out more than Peter's experience does? Like maybe his experience is not reliable or credible with his audience? No. See, that, that adjective, more fully confirmed or more sure, is one word in Greek. And it carries the idea of firmness and reliability. It's talking about something that can be relied upon not to cause disappointment. A very wooden word-for-word translation of this phrase would be, and we have more sure the prophetic word. Or to smooth that out, and we have the prophetic word which is more sure. You see, by saying this, Peter is ultimately directing the attention of his audience onto Scripture rather than his personal experience, rather than the experience of man. Because when Peter dies, they can no longer go back to Peter and say, recount for us what seeing the Lord was like. Rather, Peter wanted them to go to the very source itself. Peter wanted his audience to go to God rather than the experience of man. Not because every experience of man is false, but because God is the more worthy object of our faith. It's a matter of faith. Our faith should not ultimately rest in our own private experiences of God, but in God's very word itself. Because that is what brings God glory. And what Peter is saying is God's very word is a more worthy basis of our faith than his private experience or the private experiences of men, even the Apostle Peter's private experience, while his personal experience is reliable... Peter is comparing, he's comparing his own personal experience, his own personal private experience with the Old Testament scriptures and saying scripture is more reliable. It's more reliable in the sense that you can trust it and you can bank on it as the sole basis of your faith. In other words, in terms of what you believe, when Scripture says something, it always trumps personal experience. And this is the second proof that Peter provides that you must pay attention to so you can have a rock-solid faith. So proof number one was the reliable proof, the knowledge of Jesus in Peter's eyewitness account, verses 16 through 18. And on top of that, there's even a greater basis of faith in two The more reliable proof, the prophetic word, not from private people, but from God. That's verses 19 through 21. Look at the text. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You say, you see, we have something that can be relied upon more than our own experience, more than the experience of others. We have something that is guaranteed not to cause us disappointment. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times my own faith is questioned when I put my faith and trust in other people or their experiences, experiences they have had of God, and then it turns out that those people's experiences are false. You see, just like the infomercials on television, there are a plethora of persons ready to testify to the supposed faith or surety of some false religion. And so Peter is describing in verse 19 that what is more sure than the experiences of others is the prophetic word. If we trust in the truth of the prophetic word, we will never be disappointed. 
to many people have shipwrecked their faith on the reefs of man-made experientialism. Many people have been caught up by their own emotions and storylines without paying attention to the very word of God. Many people have missed the glories of our risen Lord Jesus to sink in the quicksand of their own self-imposed make-believe worldview. And the question for you today is, are you one of them? Are you one of them? Are you in danger right now of following your own heart at the expense of your soul? Are you listening to the storyline of your own thoughts, which is so loud it drowns out the voice of God? Or can I put it this way? When you look at the prophetic word that is given to us in the scripture that you have in the Bible you hold, is that what you cling to? Is that what you cling to? When you fear your faith may fail, do you suddenly grab hold of some experiential feeling that you muster within yourself because you tell yourself you need to believe? Or do you run to the shelf and open your Bible and gorge yourself on what God says in the prophetic word? Do you grab hold of God's word like a miser grabs hold of gold? Do you keep it in your pocket and pull it out whenever you have a free moment to look at it? Do you chew over the words and feel the substance of their truth and embrace them? Does the prophetic word thrill your soul? This word of God will not disappoint us, and so Peter wisely directs us to it as the source of our satisfaction and the furtherance of our faith. He says, verse 19b, to which you will do well to pay attention. It is the prophetic word we must heed, and so often we fail to remember what God's word says because we don't pay enough attention to it in the first place. So, so how? How are we to pay attention to God's word? Peter says at the end of verse 19, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What Peter is saying in this metaphor is the way we need to pay attention to scripture is like the way you might pay attention to your headlights when you're driving down the road in the dark, on a windy road by the side of a cliff, and sheets of rain are coming down on your windshield, you keep paying attention until you begin to see in the light the lines on the side of your lane. And what does that do? It keeps you on the road of faith. And what does Peter mean by this last phrase, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts? It's kind of an odd phrase. What does it mean, the morning star rises in your hearts? When I first read this, I was so confused. I'm like, what does he mean? Then I paid closer attention to the text. And I realized that Peter is using a play on words because the word he uses for morning star here can also mean light bearer, light bearer. And remember how God's very word was born from heaven? It's connected. You see, the light bearer will bear the light of God's very word in your hearts. So Peter is talking about the great light bearer who can be none other than Christ himself. In fact, in Revelation 22.16, Jesus calls himself the bright and morning star. So Peter is saying that Christ will bring light into your hearts as we pay attention to Scripture. 
but that morning star rising in your hearts. It's not referring, like I first thought, it's not referring to the second coming of Christ at the end of the age. Peter is not saying that we just need to pay attention to Scripture until Christ returns. No, Peter is talking about a reality that happens in the believer's hearts now. It happens in the believer's hearts. This is language similar to Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, morning star may rise in your hearts, Christ may dwell in your hearts. You see, what Peter is saying in our passage is you must keep at it. You must pay closer attention to God's word until through Christ in you, your faith is revitalized and by the Spirit, God opens up your mind to the truth of God's word. This metaphor is Peter's way of describing the end result in what we call the doctrine of illumination. The doctrine of illumination. That is, as one reads scripture, God works by the Holy Spirit in that person's mind and heart so as to open up the understanding of the reader to comprehend the fullness of light that was already there in the text. Psalm 119.10 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So Peter's exhortation is to pay attention until illumination happens to you. You know, an example of some people who did not do this well, who, who didn't pay attention in the Bible, is the Pharisees. You see, they never paid attention to God's word. They were unbelieving Jews that Jesus rebuked on multiple occasions saying, Have you not read? And you know what Paul said about people like that? A veil lies over their hearts. And it's only through Christ that it is taken away. This is amazing. God promises illumination to those who pay attention to His Word. He gives us His very Word and He helps us to understand it. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So, what is, what is Peter saying? What, what Peter is saying is we must pay closer attention to Scripture. And when you do that, it's not like Scripture becomes useless. No, it's not like at some point you pay attention to Scripture and then you don't need to pay attention to Scripture anymore. That's not what he means by until. No, the scriptures are a bountiful feast. And just because Peter tells you to enjoy your food by chewing it until it goes down naturally, that doesn't mean you stop at the first bite. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, The word of God, which is given for our instruction in divinity, contains enough in it to employ us to the end of our lives. And then we shall leave enough uninvestigated to employ the heads of the ablest divines to the end of the world. The psalmist found an end to the things that are human, but he could never find an end to what is contained in the Word of God. Psalm 119.96 I have seen an end to all perfection, but thy commandment is exceedingly broad. There is enough in this divine science to employ the understandings of saints and angels to all eternity. 
Let me just say that by way of implication, the reality of illumination will happen ultimately in the second coming of Christ. Just as at his first coming, when Jesus in Luke 24, 45, opened the minds of his disciples to understand the scriptures, so also when Jesus comes back, we will receive pleasures forevermore. As Jesus continually and exponentially opens our minds to understand the scriptures and our limited humanity will be ever thrilled by the divine word of God. So my question to you is, wouldn't you like a little piece of heaven now? And I have one plea. There is one plea for you. And I take this from verse 19, to which you will do well to pay attention. Put the scriptures as more important than your own experience. Put the scriptures as more important than your own experience. Elevate the scriptures above your own personal feelings and thoughts and experiences. Run to scripture and feast your mind on its delicacies. Stop paying attention to your own experiences in place of God's word. Stop listening to yourself and start paying attention to what God has to say. What God is calling you to do today is to reorient your life to start diving into God's word. It is the word of God. We have the very words of God. He's given them to us. Start studying them. And if you don't know how, you're, you're invited. My wife and I would love to invite you over, come over, or we'll come over to your place, whatever works, talk with one of us, and we'll study the scripture together. We would love to do that with you. Make your faith bear fruit. Furnish your faith through paying attention to God's word. Maybe you're counseling someone. Stop giving your own counsel and start directing their attention to God's word. Begin with yourself by saying like, whenever you come across a problem, I might perceive this in my own experience, but I know that the scripture is more reliable than my perception. What does it say? You see, the best question you can ask in life is, what does the text say? What does it mean? Because the most reliable basis of faith is God's very word given to us in the scripture, and you will do well to pay attention to it. Blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night. Right? And in the last two verses of our section, verses 20 through 21, Peter shows us that the proof of Scripture is not just another form of someone's own personal experiences. No, rather, the prophetic Scripture, they are God's words. They come from God, and that is why they are a more reliable basis for your faith. We can trust in God's word because, as Titus 1-2 says, God never lies. Peter writes, therefore, verse 20, look at the text, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter wants his audience to know above all, especially, there is special importance in the eyes of Peter for you to remember that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, someone's private interpretation. In other words, each and every scripture wasn't a prophecy that came by someone giving their own thoughts or perspectives or ideas about what God was saying. Rather, God did a miracle in giving scripture. Even though God used the personalities, the thoughts, and the experiences of the writers, it wasn't ultimately the writers' ideas. It wasn't their will. It wasn't of them. They were not the ultimate originators of it. 
Rather, God miraculously worked so that his words and meaning and intention was exactly what the writers wrote. And that is exactly what Peter goes on to explain, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It wasn't like the writers of Scripture went back to the back room of their minds and carried out a manuscript of their own desires. It wasn't like they wrote up whatever they pleased and God allowed it to pass as His Word. No. And let's just stop here because when we think about the truth that no prophecy of Scripture ever came from man's will, you need to ask yourself the question, do you understand what prophecy is? Do you understand what prophecy is? Do you really get it? Because a lot of people nowadays think that prophecy does come from man's will. They think you can just think up prophecy as if somehow by our own intuition and will and desires we can produce the word of God. And you ask those people, what's it like when you prophesy? And they might say something like, well, you just get really quiet and, and thoughts strongly come into your mind. They start popping into your head and when they do, well, you know then that those are the words... And thoughts that God is speaking to you. You see, many people think that whatever you feel, or whatever goes through your mind, whatever you want, they think that can be prophecy. When this sort of thing is exactly what God condemns. Ezekiel 13, 1-3 says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus the Lord God, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. You see, the very nature of what makes something prophecy is that it comes directly from God's mouth through a man. When God, when people speak from their own hearts or minds or spirits, it comes from their own will and not God's will. It doesn't come from God and therefore it's not true prophecy as our text says. Direct speaking for and from God is the only type of true prophecy and that is why Peter refers to Scripture as the prophetic word. It is prophetic in its quality. That is, it comes directly from God. Every part of Scripture is prophetic because no prophecy of Scripture came from some person's private so-called prophecy derived from his own will. Scripture is not phony. You see, Peter's point in 2 Peter 1 through 20 through 21 is that the sure prophecy of Scripture, every Scripture, is God's words. In that we should take them with the full authority of God speaking. John Calvin said this, that we owe the same reverence to Scripture as we do to God because it flowed down from him and has nothing human it makes. See, if your mom left you a note to do the dishes because she had to go and they needed to be done by the time dinner came, dinner time came, and she gets back and the dishes aren't done, and she asks, why aren't the dishes done? And you say, the note really wasn't from you, mom. It wasn't really your words because you wrote it down on paper and didn't tell me audibly. You see, that answer is doomed to be less of a credible excuse than the dog ate my homework. You see, the point is that God's words are still God's words insofar as they convey God's original intent and meaning. And Scripture is God's very words 
as when they were written in the original manuscripts, God had used the original writers as his prophets. The Bible is God's very word. Which means ultimately that Peter in verses 20 and 21 of our section is showing us that the reason we have such a reliable basis of faith, that is, a basis of faith on the prophetic scripture is rock solid because it comes from God himself. It comes from God. And as the last half of verse 21 states, specifically how Scripture was brought about, says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or another way of saying that is, but by the Holy Spirit being carried, men spoke from God. This last phrase shows the miracle of what really happened in the making of Scripture. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, moved to carry men along as they spoke from God. This was the miraculous work that we know as the doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration. So so how, how did this inspiration happen? How exactly does it work? Well, to be specific, God moved such that when the human authors of Scripture composed their part of Scripture, God worked by the Holy Spirit such that in using the full personhood and faculties of that human author, God worked confluently, that is, along with them, so that their meaning in the text was exactly and fully His meaning with no confusion. So that ultimately the human author spoke and wrote from God. God was the originator. This is a miracle from the Holy Spirit. We can praise God for it. We have God's word. I mean, what a comfort. What a comfort is this? That we have God's very word. We can memorize it. We can review it. We can look at it. We can know what God wants for us. God's words in Scripture are the most reliable basis for your faith. Let us trust them. God, we come to you in awe that you would speak to us. that you would give us your word. We are so thankful. We are so thankful that you would show yourself to us and tell us what you want us to hear. And so I pray for each one of these people that you would work in their lives, that they would stop trusting in themselves that they would stop looking to their own experiences. I pray that for myself, that you would help us. Help us to look to your word and to listen to it for its wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.